This is Decoding Superhuman with your host, Boomer Anderson. All right, superhumans, this one's fresh off the press. This is really, really hot, and my mind's actually blown from it. So let's see if I can get the intro across in really good words. It's Boomer Anderson, and we're back with another episode of the Decoding Superhuman podcast. And like every other episode, we bring on experts to separate true from false and to give you bite-sized pieces of actionable information that you can use in your everyday life to become more superhuman. This episode is amazing. In fact, it was a lot of fun for me. So my guest today is Doris Lowe, and Doris Lowe is a medical researcher and writer specializing in the investigation of familiar and innovative health topics using unique perspectives in traditional and quantum biology. Her training as a classical pianist allows her the freedom to explore concepts and theories with a curiosity that often results in distinctive conclusions. Recent works by Doris include an in-depth series on deuterium, and I'll link to that one in the show notes, as well as a startling two-part series on the biofringement quantum properties of vitamin C, that's ascorbic acid. And so if there are words in there that you may not have understood, I encourage you to stick it out through this episode because this is a very technical episode, but at the same time, Doris does a great job of taking that technical nature and breaking it down into really easy, actionable pieces of information and concrete recommendations on how you can use vitamin C in your everyday life. And so what did we get into? Well, Doris and I got into reactive oxygen species. We get into redox and defining exactly what that is. We cover EMF, EMR, and 5G, whether or not supplements are actually needed in everyday life. And then we, of course, we cover vitamin C. And if you're ever wondering if there's a difference between vitamin C and different forms, you may be shocked to hear the answer. So the show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash Doris, that's D-O-R-I-S. And enjoy my episode with Doris Lowe. Doris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Boomer. It's really wonderful to be here. This is a conversation I've looked forward to for a very long time. And I know you and I have been exchanging quite a number of emails on this. So, yes, yes. And this is such an important topic. So, I, I want to start by just defining ROS and <laughs> really how does the current environment provide a different level of ROS or reactive oxygen species than we may have been exposed to historically? Okay. That's a very, very good question. ROS, you said accurately, reactive oxygen species. Now, reactive oxygen species is actually a free radical. Now, a free radical is an atom or a group of atoms that have one or more unpaired electrons. Now this unpaired state makes that atom highly unstable. Now reactive oxygen species or ROS are actually free radicals that are derived from oxygen. So that means if it's derived from something else, let's say nitrogens, it, it wouldn't be called reactive oxygen species. It would be called reactive nitrogen species. 
Now, the fact that oxygen can generate free radicals is very interesting because most living organisms on Earth depend on oxygen. Now, we cannot survive without oxygen. We depend on oxygen to create energy to sustain biological processes. However, in using oxygen to create energy in our mitochondria, we actually end up generating a lot of ROS in the process. Now, to be fair, ROS is not all bad because ROS can be used as signaling molecules in cells. And science is just beginning to appreciate the ability of ROS to activate or deactivate a number of receptors, proteins, ions, and even other signaling molecules. But when this redox balance is disturbed due to too much or too little ROS, a lot of pathways end up being influenced and leading to cellular dysfunctions and the development of various pathologies. Excessive ROS leading to oxidative stress can actually attack cellular proteins, lipids, and nucleic acids that will eventually lead to inflammation, reduced energy metabolism, decreased biological activities, and even genetic mutations. Now, to maintain ROS balance, humans and other living organisms, including plants, have evolved robust mechanisms to neutralize and control excess ROS gener generated naturally in the body during normal biological processes and those ROS that are created extrinsically by outside factors in our environment, such as electromagnetic radiation, EMR, from the sun, the stars, or even lightning. Now, this range of EMR actually starts with gamma rays, which have the highest frequencies and therefore the highest energies, but the wavelength is much, much shorter. Now, with the Earth's atmosphere absorbing most of the sun's gamma rays, x-rays, and the shorter UVC wavelengths, humans are pretty much protected from those high intensity and often lethal EMR. Now, the rest of the EMR spectrum are UVB, UVA, visible light, and infrared. Then it is followed by microwaves, radio waves, and those extremely low-frequency electromagnetic fields, or what they call ELFEMF, which is generated all over the place by power lines supplying electricity. And this is where the difference is between our world today and that of our ancestors. Now, I would say that the sun was probably the only major source of extrinsic ROS for all living organisms until about 140 years ago, when Thomas Edison introduced electricity into the homes of people. Now, with this introduction of electricity and the rapid growth in the use of electronic devices and equipment generating different frequencies of EMR, humans and other living organisms are now faced with a totally different ROS landscape. 
Now, even though we have adapted spectacularly to EMR from the sun, I would venture to say that we are actually not genetically adapted yet to effectively handle this extra load of EMR and ROS created by these EMR. So what, what actually does this higher level of ROS means for humans and other living organisms? Now, ROS and free radicals all contain an odd number of electrons in their outermost shells. Now, due to these peculiarities, these free radicals are highly unstable and they are very reactive as they try to gain or lose an electron in their outermost shells to stabilize themselves. Now, free radicals and actually cause a tremendous amount of cellular damage because they're able to generate more free radicals when they take electrons from other molecules. And this chain reaction is known as free radical cascades. Now, for example, a free, uh, a free electron interacts with oxygen to form superoxide, which then can become hydrogen peroxide, which if it is not neutralized by catalase or glutathione, can actually become hydroxyl radicals. Now, hydroxyl radicals is actually the most powerful of all the reactive oxygen species because it is the only form of ROS that can attack virtually any chemical bond it comes into contact with. Now, hydroxyl radicals can further deteriorate into peroxyl radicals, which can cause ex extensive lipid peroxidation on cellular membranes that can eventually lead to cell death. So that's why ROS is very, very dangerous for humans. Doris, that explanation was more than I could have asked for. It was incredible. <laughs> Taking us back in history all the way to Thomas Edison and even before, that's that's amazing. So I want to take it just a little step further here because I I, I read a lot and I, I get put into a lot of these different groups. And the question of EMF and 5G always comes up. Do you mind just touching a little bit on the uh, the issue with emf or emr as well as 5g and because it's being rolled out right now why is it an issue and feel free to go as technical as you want here that's a, that's a really good question because a lot of people are really concerned about 5g well uh, let's find out what exactly emr is emr electromagnetic radiation is composed of an electric field and a magnetic field. Now, quantum mechanics view all EMR as photons, and all photons carry energy. The higher the frequency, the higher the energy of the photon. So what happens when a photon meets, let's say, an oxygen molecule? Actually, nothing happens. But when you have a photon, a photosensitizer, and a oxygen molecule, then you can create ROS. Now that's really interesting, isn't it? Photosensitizers can absorb light, 
And when photosensitizers absorb light, they become electronically excited. And then they're actually able to transfer this absorbed energy to surrounding molecules, such as oxygen. Now, with this transfer of energy, molecular oxygen then becomes excited electronically also. And then singlet oxygen, a very unstable form that can be highly toxic to cells is, is created. Now, our bodies are actually full of various types of endogenous photosensitizers like melanin, liposuction, and photopigments like opsins and chromophores. I bet you've heard of melanopsin. It's actually a photopigment that is sensitive exclusively to blue light. Now, it is able to use the energies from blue light to process signal transductions. Blue light is found in the visible spectrum from 450 to 485 nanometers, which describes its wavelength. And for the frequency of blue light, it is actually between 620 to 680 terahertz. Now, the photon energy of blue light is actually between 6.24 to 6, uh, I'm sorry, 2.64 to 2.75 electron volts. Now, this actually is quite a high energy state, and that is why blue light is able to eject electrons from their orbits. And that is also why you sometimes find in studies where they show blue light can actually create ROS like superoxides and singlet oxygens in the presence of photosensitizers. Now, photosensitizers are not really bad. Photosensitizers are actually necessary because they serve specific biological functions in our bodies. For example, plants use chlorophyll as photosensitizer to harness the energy from photons during photosynthesis. We use photosensitizers to make use of the photon energy from the sun, and we actually have developed mechanisms to deal with the ROS that may be generated as a result of these processes. But when we have an excess of ROS resulting from man-made EMR, that is where the trouble begins. So basically, man-made sources of EMR includes everything that operates on electricity, which is between 50 to 60 hertz. And if a device can send or receive communication signals, it will rely on higher energy photons like radio waves starting at 30 kilohertz. The operating frequencies of cell phones is around 1.9 gigahertz for 2G, 2.1 gigahertz for 3G, and 2.5 gigahertz for 4G. For 5G, it actually goes all the way up to 95 gigahertz. Now, 5G is quite interesting in that it actually operates within two bands. There is this sub six gigahertz band, and one that operates between 24 to 25 gigahertz. And, then, and this band is often referred to as the milliwave band. Now, even though the power density increases as the frequencies increase, the penetration actually decreases. 
However, according to one study I've read, at 60 gigahertz, more than 90% of the transmitted power is actually absorbed in the epidermis and the dermis layer of the human skin. So there is actually no denying that EMR at any frequency affects our health. And as I said earlier, EMR consists of an electric field and a magnetic field. And the interesting thing about magnetic fields is that it can penetrate into human tissues without any substantial loss of intensity. So you have electricity, which is an ELF, EMF, running at either 50 or 60 hertz, depending on where you are, being able to penetrate human tissues. And that is why in 2002, the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer officially established that ELF-EMF may actually represent a possible carcinogenic hazard for humans. This is incredible. All right, mind blown here. So we're going from two and a half gigahertz and 4G to a 30 plus times increase with 5G, which is amazing. And we have now fields that are able to penetrate our skin without any substantial loss of intensity. So there's so many questions that naturally arise from this, but I want to talk a little bit about photons. Do photons always need that photosensitive do they need photosynthesize so do, let me say that three times fast do photons always need photosynthesizers to create reactive oxygen species in our body great question no they don't actually photosensitizers generally work with higher frequencies fo- higher frequency photons like uvb uva blue light and infrared Now, the troubling fact is both EMR at low and higher frequencies have been shown to be able to induce redox alterations within cells. Now, the fact that EMR can affect redox is huge because redox imbalance creates oxidative stress. Oxidative stress plays a critical role in the pathogenesis of almost all diseases, including cancer. And many signaling pathways underlying changes in cancer cell behavior are tightly regulated by redox-responsive elements. Now, all the increased EMR around us, from basic usage of electricity to all the electronic and mobile devices that use radio waves to communicate, are actually affecting us in a huge way by creating excess ROS, which leads to oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is now linked to inflammation and immune dysregulation, the development of cardiovascular diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, metabolic disorders, but most of all, ROS can actually cause mitochondrial dysfunction. I don't believe you can actually find any disease that's not linked to oxidative stress in some meaningful way. Oxidative stress is created when there's an imbalance in redox. This is incredible. Again, you know, going into this because, you know, cardiovascular disease being one of the top killers of people out there, 
It needs to get more attention. Now, Doris, some of your recent work has been around ascorbic acid. And most people think, hey, I drink my orange juice. Hey, I have my, my fruit. I get enough vitamin C. Do you mind just talking a little bit as to why this may not be the case? I'd be very, very happy to. Now, Boomer, humans and primates, like monkeys, they don't make vitamin C like most other animals and plants. Humans have to rely on dietary sources for adequate vitamin C levels. Now, in the distant past, in a world without artificial EMR, people actually didn't need to supplement with vitamin C. And whatever they were able to absorb from the food was actually enough to keep them healthy. Now, one interesting thing that you would notice is fruits almost always have the highest concentration of vitamin C. And the closer you get to the equator, the more variety of fruits you will see. I think it is nature's way to ensure that we have enough vitamin C to protect us from the high intensity photons from the sun. However, we now live in a world where we are surrounded by man-made EMR 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no matter where you are. And I don't think nature actually anticipated that. In addition, Due to the increase of metabolic diseases, a lot of people actually have to use low-carb or zero-carb diets to maintain their health. So eating fruits and vegetables to obtain a vitamin C is just not an option for these people. Under these circumstances, I really don't think it's difficult to get enough vitamin C. So if you want to find out how much vitamin C you have, you do a lab test. And if you perform what is called an organic acids test, OAT, vitamin C usually will show up as severely deficient and most probably show up at zero. Now, the most common rationalization I've seen by experts is that vitamin C has a short half-life and therefore morning urine would not be able to accurately reflect the status of your vitamin C levels. But from my research, if you supplement with adequate vitamin C, your blood will actually maintain a constant level of vitamin C in a 24-hour period. And that level would actually be correctly reflected in your morning urine. So why do people not show any vitamin C levels? And for that answer, we actually have to go back all the way to 1964, where a bunch of scientists tested how much vitamin C was excreted in the urine in humans after taking just 200 milligrams of ascorbic acid or vitamin C. Now, the samples of their urine were obtained every hour for 10 hours, and the amounts of total ascorbic acid excreted in the 24-hour period were between 10 to 20% of the amounts administered, which was 200 milligrams. So how much is 200 milligrams? You can find 200 milligrams in about two large oranges. 
So why would test subjects show vitamin C in their urine after taking just 200 milligrams of vitamin C back in 1964? But people today, if they drink orange juice, eat fruits, they don't show any. I think the main reason is back in 1964, there's actually a lot less EMR than there is today. Think back, homes back then barely had televisions or even telephones, depending on your income level. And the amount of EMR around us is what is depleting vitamin C in our bodies. So I think unless you do a lab test to prove that you have enough vitamin C, it is actually quite dangerous to assume that you have enough vitamin C from your diet. Our sponsor for today's show is one of the two brands of blue light blockers that I actually recommend using. And I've had the CEO, Matt Maruka, on the show before, and we got into a two-hour-long discussion, which I think to this day is the longest episode of the Decoding Superhuman podcast. But his company, Raw Optics, has made blue light blockers sexy. In fact, I know they worked because I've seen the test results. And the beauty of their product is, is that blue light doesn't get in. And if any amount of blue light gets in, that Netflix show that you're watching late at night, that book that you're reading, that email that you're answering is disrupting your sleep. So where do you get yours? Head over to rawoptics.com, plug in the code BOOMER, you'll get 15% off your order. Enjoy. There is a lot I can double click on here because as a person who has tested and found in the past that I have virtually no vitamin C. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's funny to to it's funny but also affirming to hear this that it is a very important subject that we need to address. So, Doris, if you don't mind, I want to talk a little bit about the effects of vitamin C and ascorbic acid. What effects does it have on our system? And do you mind, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but just going a little bit deeper on redox here? Okay, Um, I'd be very happy to. Now, all plants and animals, they require ascorbic acid. Plants, for instance, they use ascorbic acid to protect themselves from oxidative stress created by excess sunlight. Leaves that are exposed to sun naturally accumulate substantially more ascorbic acid than the leaves that are in the shade. And in a study conducted in 2013, they found tomato plants, when they're exposed to extra LED lighting, actually doubled their ascorbic acid content. And in mice that are bred, without specific ascorbic acid transporters called SVCT2 or sodium-dependent vitamin C transporter 2, these mice, they don't survive past birth and they show severe hemorrhaging in their brains. I think most people actually don't appreciate how important vitamin C is for humans. Now, to understand how vitamin C actually works, it may be easier to think vitamin C as the major component of the foundation upon which you build your house of health. 
Now, this foundation has to be solid. Otherwise, your house won't be sturdy no matter what you do. You can take all the fancy supplements to enhance specific pathways, which to me is like patching holes on the wall. Now, patching holes will carry you for a while, but usually if you fix a crack here, Another crack will show up sooner or later elsewhere. So you are actually forever chasing something elusive because your foundation is not solid. And this foundation that I'm talking about is redox. And a vitamin C is a redox balancer. Now, almost all biological processes involve the exchange of electrons and protons. And having too much or too little of electrons and protons will create redox imbalance. There is a reason why vitamin C is actually found in every single cell of every organ and tissues in our body. And it is also especially important for mitochondria. And mitochondrial dysfunction is now considered to be the cause of many, many diseases. I'll give you an example of how our body actually uses vitamin C as a redox balancer. When our bodies make catecholamines like dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine, scientists found that vitamin C is used as an electron donor in these processes. Now, these scientists have tried to substitute vitamin C with other antioxidants like glutathione, for instance, and they were actually not able to get the same results. Our bodies are just designed to use vitamin C as a redox balancer. And you may want to ask, well, why? I mean, why, why must we use vitamin C? The answer is very simple, because it's actually easy, or what I call cheap, to regenerate. Now, our Bodies can reuse vitamin C over and over again as long as we can regenerate it. And to regenerate vitamin C, the cheaper it is, the better, because you use less energy in the process. So what do we use to regenerate vitamin C? If your body has NADH, and NADH will be the first element that the body goes to, to use to regenerate vitamin C. And NADH is actually very, very easy to get a hold of if you eat an adequate amount of carbohydrates. Now, as a redox balancer, vitamin C is used to regenerate dopamine beta-hydroxylase in the production of dopamine. But the really important part played by vitamin C in catecholamine synthesis is its effect on tyrosine hydroxylase, which is the rate-limiting step in all catecholamine synthesis. Now, vitamin C actually has been found to enhance the expression of tyrosine hydroxylase, and it is also responsible for the regeneration of something called BH4, tetrahydrobiopterin, which is used by tyrosine hydroxylase to convert tyrosine into DOPA, the precursor to dopamine. And by providing electrons to dopamine beta-hydroxylase, vitamin C also facilitates the production of norepinephrine. Now, this reduction of BH4 by vitamin C actually has very important implications for a lot of diseases, including hypertension, cardiovascular diseases, and even erectile dysfunction, because 
If BH4 is in the oxidized and not the reduced form, nitric oxide synthase, or NOS, will actually produce superoxide and peroxynitrides instead of nitric oxide. Now, peroxynitride is an RNS, which is reactive nitrogen species because it is derived from nitrogen. Peroxynitrites are very, very dangerous because they cause lipid peroxidation. Now, going back to the word redox, when I use the word reduce in the context of redox, it doesn't mean to lower the quantity. Redox stands for reduction and oxidation potential. Redox potential measures the tendency of molecules to acquire electrons, and when a molecule gains an electron, it is being reduced. Reduction potential is measured in volts or millivolts. Now, reduction potential are always measured in pairs, where one of the elements would receive or accept an electron, and the other would donate or give away an electron. In the redox pair NAD plus NADH, which has the redox potential of negative 320 millivolts, NADH will donate an electron to any element with a higher redox potential. For example, it will easily donate an electron to vitamin C, which has a redox potential of positive 282 millivolts. Or for example, in the mitochondria, NADH will donate electrons to the hydrogen-oxygen redox pair, which has a redox potential of positive 820 millivolts to form water. Now, after NADH loses an electron, it becomes NAD+, and NAD+, will gain an electron from other molecules, for example, during glycolysis, to become NADH again. So the Easiest way to think about redox is that electrons will always flow from negative potential to positive potential. The more negative the potential, the easier it is for that element to lose electrons, whereas the more positive or the higher the redox potential, the easier it is for that element to gain electrons. And most powerful free radicals have extremely high reduction potentials. Depending on the pH of the medium, the redox potential of the hydroxyl radical is around 2,300 millivolts. And that is why hydroxyl radicals can break any chemical bond because of this extremely, extremely high redox potential. Wow. Doris, I want to give you a chance to breathe there for a second because... Yeah, let's take less to <laughs> So, Doris, one of the things I want to clear up here is types of vitamin C because there's a lot on the internet and we know the internet is full of a lot of gunk. So, do you mind just explaining the the differences between vitamin C and ascorbic acid? I would be more than happy to do that, Boomer, because sometimes people come up to me and say, ascorbic acid is not vitamin C. It's not the same thing. And 
I hate to tell you, vitamin C and ascorbic acid is one and the same. There's absolutely no difference. But to really understand why there's this confusion, let me take you back 91 years ago to when vitamin C was first discovered in 1928 by Albert Zen Georgie. Now, Albert Zen Georgie isolated a substance with a chemical formula of C6H8. That is responsible for reduction actions in plants, preventing them from oxidizing and turning brown. Now, he first actually called this substance hexuronic acid. But even back then, Albert Zen Georgie observed that hexuronic acid can both be oxidized and reduced. But at that time, there were also some confusion over vitamin C, also known as ascorbic acid, and hexuronic acid. But eventually, Dr. Charles Glenn King, who isolated vitamin C around the same time Albert Zen Georgie discovered hexuronic acid, wrote a paper in 1932 admitting that hexuronic acid is identical to vitamin C or ascorbic acid that he himself isolated. So that is why ultimately Albert Zen Georgie was credited with the discovery of vitamin C, and there's actually no difference between vitamin C, ascorbic acid, and hexuronic acid. And contrary to what some people may believe, the molecular structure between synthetic ascorbic acid and the ascorbic acid that is made naturally in plants and animals are actually identical. So you can just go to the store and get vitamin C, ascorbic acid, and it will be the same as the one that you get in an orange. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if you're able to do this, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, How much vitamin C should the average person be taking? Because the image that comes to my mind are these stories of Linus Pauling taking so many I can't even remember how much he was taking so much vitamin C, but I would love to hear just sort of your thoughts around dosage, if you don't mind. Uh, Sure, Uh, because a lot of people do ask me that. Now, to me, if a person lives in a high EMR environment like any big city, works in an environment with a lot of electronic devices, I would imagine the requirement for vitamin C for that person goes up exponentially. There is really no right amount because everyone's redox status is different. And how that redox status reacts with the person's diet and environment actually affects how much vitamin C the person can take or should take. Now, our environment, also includes exposure to the sun. High sun exposure also increases our need for vitamin C. For example, our skin makes nitric oxide when we are exposed to UV radiation. But that is only good if you have enough vitamin C because remember what I said earlier about EH4 tetrahydrobioctrin? It is not regenerated by vitamin C In its oxidized form, BH4 will not help produce the valuable nitric oxide, but it will produce dangerous free radicals instead. Now, another good example would be a young person 
would also need less vitamin C than a person. And a healthy person would also require less than one whose immune system is challenged. But in general, I find that for an adult with acceptable health, meaning they actually have no serious health challenges, living in a big city where there's not too much sun, about four to six grams taken in small frequent doses gets the best results. If a person's redox is severely compromised, they actually would not be able to tolerate such a high level to start with. So my advice would be just start low and work your way up. All right. So I need to up my vitamin C intake, clearly. But you are young, Boomer. <laughs> you may not, and if you're healthy, you need less. You know, everyone's different. Excellent, excellent. Well, Doris, this has been such a pleasure. Before we go on to the final four questions, there's a lot on supplement, a lot of controversy around the word supplements, right? And one of the things that I want to talk about real quick is people who say you shouldn't take pills. Is that, is there, is that right or wrong? Is it, what, what's your general reaction to this? So people that say you shouldn't be supplementing. Great. Yes. Because people do say mm-hmm. that. Now, ideally we should be able to obtain all our nutrients from our diet. And that was actually the way of life until a couple hundred years ago. But today, Our food sources are severely compromised by pollutants, and the micronutrient contents of food are also significantly reduced. I think we are simply unable to obtain everything we need from food sources. However, I think that supplementation itself, without addressing redox balance, will probably be unable to reverse health challenges. And I think that's why people think that, or people who have tried supplementation and fail to get the kind of results that they're looking for, conclude that supplementation is not effective. I think supplementation can be highly effective when it is applied in the context of improving redox balance. Now, I do have reservations in taking very specific supplements in order to agonize or antagonize specific biological pathways because you never know what other effects you will be producing unless you have incredibly detailed knowledge of your genetic pathways. Now, sometimes I think nature put defects in us for a reason. For example, a person may be slightly hypoxic because the person has defects in cancer suppression pathways. So in trying to fix their hypoxia, you could potentially exacerbate that problem in cancer suppression and maybe possibly even create the perfect storm for cancer development. So I'd rather use something like vitamin C in in addressing hypoxia because vitamin C is required for the hydroxylation of HIF1A, uh, hypoxia-inducible factor 1-alpha. Without vitamin C, HIF1A can accumulate and activate a lot of pathways. Some of them are connected to cancer proliferation. 
And vitamin C will also address issues in cancer suppression because the tumor suppressor, cytochrome B5 reductase, which is a plasma membrane redox enzyme, uses vitamin C in its redox processes, balancing protons and electrons. First, I love what you said about the almost a complex systems approach that we need to take, right? Because nature is very smart. Evolution has been very smart. And obviously there's been reasons for people to develop the way they are. And the way you just outline that complex systems approach and how we need to think about it is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you, (laughs) Boomi. Doris, if you don't mind, I want to transition into the final four questions. And before we do that, I just want to acknowledge you for all of the work you do. We're going to link to it in the show notes, but your work is fantastic. I always enjoy reading and rereading and rereading it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So let's kick things off with what's the one area where you, where you think people should pay more attention to when looking to improve a performance? That's easy. Improve your redox and you'll find better mental clarity, improved immunity, increased resilience and resistance, increased stamina, faster recovery time in sports training, improved sleep, improved sex life. In general, less oxidative stress just improves health in every way imaginable. It's really a no-brainer to me. What's your top trick for enhancing focus? Ah, to be honest, I'm we're actually working right now on an amazing, amazing hack, but I'm not yet ready to go public with this. So in the meantime, I can tell you that deep breathing along with some om chanting improves my ability to concentrate and distill thoughts. And longer term, I would say that sleep is extremely important for mental focus and clarity. When you do release that, please let me know because I'm going to send it to everybody when you have. (laughs) (laughs) I sure will, Boomer. What book has significantly impacted your life and your ability to show up and perform in it? Wow, that's a very deep question. A book called uh, The Journey of Souls, Case Studies of Life Between Lives by Dr. Michael Newton that was published in 1994 was actually instrumental in helping me realize my full potential. Now, this book is a series of testimonies presented by Dr. Newton after years of practicing hypnotherapy. This book attempts to explain the complexity of consciousness and the soul, past lives, karmas, and destiny. This book has actually led me to believe that every connection is sacred and that we need to do our very best to honor each and every connection we make in this lifetime. Now, for example, my recent research into vitamin C has really helped many, many people regain their health. And I believe I have chosen this path in this lifetime, and therefore, I need to honor my choice by giving it everything that I have. Such a great way to end an episode. Doris, where can people find out more about you? 
Okay, Boomer, I don't have a website yet, but most of my larger and more complex works can be found on LinkedIn under my name, Doris Lowe, L-O-H. And my other research articles can be found on my home, uh, Facebook homepage, where the articles are public and can be shared freely by anyone. I don't post anything personal on my timeline, only my research. Doris, thank you so much for taking the time today. I I know I'm going to go right down the street to the pharmacy after this. So thank you again it's for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for having me here today, Boomer. The show notes for this one are going to be at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Doris. And to all the superhumans listening out there, have an absolutely epic day. Superhumans, before you go, if you enjoy the episode, if you enjoy all of our episodes, head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. It would really, really help get the word out on what we're doing here at Decoding Superhuman. Feedback. If you want to give us direct feedback or you want to see us cover a specific topic, whether on the shorter episodes or the longer episodes, head on over to your email and email us at podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com. For those of you who have sent emails to that address, you know that I respond to every single one. And then lastly, would you like 300 to 500 words of highly curated information on how to upgrade performance? If so, head on over to decodingsuperhuman.com slash throwdown and you'll get our next issue of the throwdown, which is our 300 to 500 word highly curated digest, if you will, on what's going on in the field of performance. Enjoy your day, superhumans, and thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's episode.